The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golokla, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Morning, y'all. How are we doing today? We have chairs today, so that's new. Um, Yes, uh, would you guys pray with me? Lord, we ask you to speak. Lord, as we encounter your word, uh, as we encounter uh, the first of the four gospels, uh, the accounts of your son, Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit works and that we come to see you a little bit more clearly. Uh, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So, my, the women in my life play a very special role. Uh, really pray for them, pray for my wife, pray for my sister, pray for my mom, because uh, trying to contain me uh, and try to keep me on track is literally a full-time job, especially because, for the most part, I never shut up. Right? So I am always telling stories. You've probably noticed that quite quickly with me as a preacher. I love to tell stories. Um, but when I tell stories, I typically have a purpose to the story. So there is a punchline to a joke that I'm working towards. Or there's a uh, deeper meaning that I'm trying to reveal. And so I'll tell the same story five different ways. And I could talk about how when I was growing up, I moved a lot. And for some people, I'm really just working towards a joke of something stupid I did while we were moving. But then if I'm working with maybe middle school students, I'll tell that exact same story with this understanding that, you know what, I really want to emphasize that I had a hard time making friends when I was growing up because I'm trying to connect with them that way, right? And so I can tell the same story over and over and over again with a very different meaning, with a very different purpose. Now, for my wife and for my mom and my sister, who like to be a little bit more uh, chronological in order, that can be frustrating because I'll switch dates around sometimes. Sometimes I'll completely leave out people from the story or the, uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make. And so I'll constantly get this kind of like autocorrect. It wasn't five days. It was eight days, Josh. Or like, no, it didn't happen that way because there's these two different methods of telling stories, right? Sometimes you're looking more for the historicity of it. What was the chronological facts of the event? But then other times, we're trying to drive towards a different point. And the reason why I bring that up is because as we're going through the series called The Gospels, right, there are four stories of Jesus' life. And one of the first questions that I often get from Christians, from new believers, is why are these four stories here? And why do they sometimes look a little bit differently? Why is the order sometimes different? And the reason being is because while Jesus was very much a historical man. When early Christianity started, there were different groups at different phases of their relationship with Christ, at different phases of their relationship as being a Christian. And so early Christian leaders went about telling the story of Jesus with different 
points they were trying to really drive home in each of the Gospels. And so when you read through Matthew, it's going to read differently than Mark, which is going to read differently than Luke, which is going to read very differently than John. Uh, and so what we're going to be doing through this series is the goal is to kind of give us a key to each of the books. To be able to understand, oh, when I'm reading Matthew, this is kind of what's happening. Or when I'm reading Luke, who is very much a historian, who is very much focused on what were the exact events and when did they happen, you're going to read them a little bit differently and you're going to find something else out about Jesus. One of my favorite parts of the Gospels is at the end of John, John is trying to explain who Jesus is and he says, this man was so full of life and so full of light that if you were to fill all the books of the world with stories about Jesus, those books would not be able to contain him. Right? That is how big our God is. That is how vast our God is. And yet we have these four books, and each one of them is emphasizing a different point, a different aspect of who Jesus is and what role he plays in our life. And so we're going in order of the books, and so we're going to start with Matthew. Um, but before we start and really dive into Matthew, uh, there's a, uh, some terminology that I want to walk through you guys with. Because when it comes to Scripture, there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Some people will literally just go and they'll open their Bible and say, God, today I need a word from you. And they'll open it up, put their finger down, and they'll start reading. And while God certainly can speak through that way, there is a danger when all of a sudden we start putting ourselves at the center of God's story. When the Bible becomes specifically, what does God want to say to me? Then I become the center of what God is doing. And whenever I think I've become the center of what God is doing, that is a really safe assumption that I'm somewhere in sin, right? I've put the story and its focus on me as opposed to saying, no, this is your story, God, and you've invited me into it. And so I want to see what that story is. And so one of the best ways to read Scripture is to practice something called exegesis, big word, hermeneutics, big word, right? Exegesis, though, in its most basic understanding, is knowing what the text meant to the original audience, right? So before I can figure out what it means to me, trying to figure out, okay, why did Matthew write the book of Matthew? What was he trying to do? What was he trying to accomplish, right? And then once I can understand what the original meaning of the text, then I can do what's called hermeneutics and knowing what the text means for the church today. And notice how I put the church today, not necessarily me today. Because at the end of the day, the Bible is our family's book. It's our family's history. It's ours together, not mine alone. And that's a really big deal because, again, as soon as I start to say, the Bible's all about me, that's a really dangerous place to be, right? And a really good example of this, so growing up, one of my favorite Bible verses came from Jeremiah. And it's called Jeremiah 29, 11. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Isn't that inspiring? Don't you read that and you're like, yes, God has plans for me. He's going to prosper me. He's going to take care of me. And so growing up, I really loved this verse. And I still love this verse, but I look at it differently now, right? Because if I'm the center of God's story, if all I'm doing is opening up my Bible and saying, God, what do you have for me today? And I see this, and I'm like, okay, if this is true, awesome. Then I'm going to go buy that new big house, or I'm definitely going to get into this college, or all these things are going to go right for me because God has plans to prosper me. And then the next day I get cancer, and I'm like, what the heck, God? That totally does not align with this right here, right? There's this dissonance that happens. But when we practice exegesis and hermeneutics, what we find 
right, is that the original text, Jeremiah is written to the kingdom of Israel. And at the time of Jeremiah, things are going pretty well, but people are getting farther and farther away from God. They had a righteous king, King Josiah, but then the king that came after Josiah was not righteous. And he was leading God's people into following other idols, into trusting in wealth and in military power. And so when you read through Jeremiah, the first part of the book is, it's going to get bad for you guys. In fact, Jeremiah prophecy, uh, has a prophecy that says, the Babylonians are going to come. Because you've rebelled against God, you're going to get plundered, you're going to lose your land, you're going to be taken out into slavery. That, that doesn't really sound like, for I know the plans I have for you, does it? He says all these things, that bad stuff is going to happen, that we live in a broken world and our own brokenness causes all kinds of mess. But then he says, Jeremiah, to the people of Israel, he says, for I know the plans I have for you all, declares the Lord. And he's talking to his people. Plans to prosper you all and not to harm you all. Plans to give you all a hope and a future. God says to his people, I'm not done with you. Yes, there is going to be hardship. Yes, there is going to be brokenness. But I have not forgotten you, and you are still my people. You are still my family, and I have plans for you. You're not done yet. But do you see how that nuance is different? One of these puts me at the center of God's story and says, this is what God wants for me. He wants good for me, and everything's going to be perfect. But then all of us realize that life's going to slam into us, and we're going to get sick, or we're going to lose a job, there's going to be fighting in our family. And if this is supposed to be true, this isn't always going to align with real life. But when we step back and look at the larger narrative and realize that what God was originally saying to his people was, it's going to get hard, but I have not forgotten you, and I promise to take care of you, and I promise you're not going to be alone, then when we get to the hermeneutics, what does this mean for the church today? We realize we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who, even when his people were taken into slavery, even when they had rebelled, he was still working for their good. He still had promised a Messiah who would come and rescue them and redeem them and ultimately make things right. When we understand what the text originally meant, we can understand what the text means for us today. So that's what we're going to be doing looking at Matthew. And so when we look at Matthew, one of the original things that becomes really clear reading through the story is that the original audience were the early first century Jewish people, right? That was the original people that it was written to. Uh, if you look at Luke, it is written to Greek Christians. And so its thought process is different, it highlights different aspects, but Matthew is very clearly written to a Jewish audience, who are trying to work out who this Jesus guy was. And specifically, the purpose of it is to highlight the fact that Jesus is the king of David that they were waiting for. In fact, that Jeremiah 29.11 verse was talking about Jesus. It was talking about, one day I'm going to send a Messiah who is going to help prosper my people, who is going to lead my people, who is going to give my people a, a future. And you see this all throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, God had promised a Messiah so this is from Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Scripture had been promising that God was going to bring this king, and this king was going to rule. Second Samuel 
Uh, this is God speaking to David, and he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, David had been a good king, but God had said, one day a descendant of yours is going to be an entirely different kind of king. And his throne won't last for one generation. His throne will last for eternity. And so the Jewish people had been waiting for this king because, again, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah had prophesied it's going to get bad. The Babylonians are going to come. And then the Persians are going to come. And then the Assyrians are going to come. Oh, and then the Romans are going to come. And every time, things got worse. Every time things got harder, and yet God's promise still stood, and he says, I have plans for you. I have not forgotten you. The Messiah is coming, and he is coming from the line of David, and he is going to be your king. And so when we read through Matthew again and again and again, we hear this emphasis that Christ is from the line of David and that he is the king that God had promised. But what we find is that he's a very different kind of king, right? Literally, the first words of Matthew are this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you go through all of chapter 1, and it's all about the genealogy of Jesus and how he was always the promised Messiah. He was always the promised king, and he came through this very specific lineage because God had said David's lineage is where the king is going to come from. And so the Jewish people had been on the lookout. Right? But we're talking five, six, seven centuries had passed throughout that lineage, and so the family had spread out. It wasn't like they were just watching one family. Right? They weren't like, okay, it's got to be through this one line. No, you have kids, and they have kids, and this is a time where you, know, you might have seven, eight, ten kids who are having seven, eight, ten kids, and so by the time you're 700 years later, you don't have like one village. You have like almost an entire state of the lineage of David. Right? And so everyone's kind of got a connection, and yet what we find in Matthew is no that God had always had a plan, and that Jesus' lineage runs through David. And yet what we also find, though, is he's come to be a very different kind of king, and this is very apparent early on. This comes from Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented the, uh, the uh, star. They rose and said, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Again and again and again, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the king. But what we found is very quickly, the Jewish people, just people in general, were, were looking in the right place. They were looking for him to be born in the right family, with power and prestige. And one of the really interesting things about this story is who shows up for Jesus' birth. It's not... Uh, the, the Jewish priests. It's not the pastors. It's not the church-going folk. No, magi from the east. Magi is where we get the word magicians from. In the Old Testament, the magi were the bad guys. 
God's people would come and the magi, the magicians would come and the good guys were supposed to smite the bad guys. And so the fact that the only people who show up at Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel are the magi, they're the only ones who recognize what God is doing, is one of the ways Matthew is pointing to the fact the king isn't who you expect. He's not going to come from where you expect. He's going to break through your expectations. And so we see this in scripture is this idea that Jesus doesn't show up when we expect him to. He doesn't play by the world's rules. He doesn't care about what the world considers prestigious or powerful. Right? And you certainly see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus constantly is confounding his enemies because they're like, but that's not the way we're supposed to do it. And his response is, but this is the way the kingdom of God advances. Right? The, the kingship, the lordship continues on. This is from Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethanage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went to two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. Say to daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The crowds went ahead of him, and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. What we see is that Jesus doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't come to kick down uh, doors, to take names. He comes humble because he sees humility as strength. Right? Our God doesn't play by the world's rules. Our king doesn't play by the rules, the world's rules. What's interesting is that people had seen Jesus. They had seen the miracles he had performed. They had seen the crowds he had had. And the crowds knew who he was. This is the king. This is Hosanna. This is the one who came in the line of David. He's finally here. But what's really interesting is that that happens on Palm Sunday. And four days later, they decided, actually, we don't want this king anymore. Because he didn't meet our expectations of what a king was supposed to be. He wasn't powerful enough. He wasn't assertive enough. The Jewish people, just like us people today, have expectations of what God is supposed to do. And when he doesn't do what we expect him to, we have a tendency to rebel. Our sinful nature rises up inside of us, and all of a sudden, we're like, actually, I think I've got another king in mind. Maybe that king is ourself. Maybe that king is our bank account. Maybe that king is our job or our spouse or our kids. But we find something else that is going to rule over us, right? Because that's what a king is. The idea of a king is this is the person who's in charge. And unlike in a democracy where we elect our government and we say, you're supposed to serve us, the definition of a king is you're at the top of the totem pole, right? And so what do we put at the top of our totem pole? What's interesting, though, is that even as people reject him, he's still fighting for us. And that's where our scripture reading for today came from, right? So this is Matthew 27. Then the government soldiers took Jesus into the presidium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him off. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Even in mocking him, they were still treating him as a king. 
Then they knelt in front of him, mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took a staff. They struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took the robe off him and put on his own clothes. Then they led him away to crucify him. And when they had crucified him, they divided up the clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed a sign, written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Matthew's gospel again and again and again reemphasizes that our God is king. But we learn about something about our king in this. He was willing to do that. See, most of the time when we think about kings, when we think about those in power, we think about corruption, we think about selfishness, we think about blowhards, we think about all the horrible ways leadership can go wrong. And yet our king, the king that we find in Matthew, is a king who is willing to die for his people, who is willing to be humiliated and mocked, ultimately killed, because our God, our king, will go to any length to have a relationship with us, will go to any length to make things right. Because the very moment that Jesus dies, there was a curtain in the temple that separated people from God. And that temple ripped, that curtain rips in half. And all of a sudden, everything that had separated us from God, all of our sin, all of our selfishness, all the times that we even to this day still say, you know what, I'd rather not have you as my king. I'm going to believe in something else. Our king says, for all of that, I will die. I will put that on my shoulders. I will wipe it clean so we can have a relationship. We find in Matthew is a king worth following. A Lord who protects his subjects, even when they're in active rebellion. We have a powerful God who moves and who acts. And we see that in the gospel. And then it ends with this verse. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority. That's what a king has. And he says, It's all mine now. I've conquered death. I've conquered sin. It's all mine. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Who is our king? Our king is the one who conquered evil, who was given all authority. And then he gives us a mission. He says, now the kingdom is going to start to expand. God's future is about to begin. He says, and I want you to be a part of it. Because I want you to take my authority, take my power, and I want you to share my grace and my love with the broken around you. And yet what we see is in, in the same way that it can be tempted to say, okay, now we've got all the power, we've got all the authority, let's go kick butt, let's go take some names. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how the king did it. No, he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Just as I loved you, love your neighbor. Just as I sacrificed for you, sacrifice for your neighbor. Our king set the example. And then he gives us that mission to go out using his methods to expand his kingdom. And so as we read through the gospel of Matthew, we look at it realizing this is our king. And what is he teaching us? 
teaching us through his words. The Sermon on the Mount, where he's very explicit as far as do this, don't do that, but also through his actions. How did he love? How did he forgive? How was he willing to carry the burdens of others so that they might one day be free? When we read through the Gospel of Matthew, we find a king that is worth serving. A king that is worth putting our trust in. A king that will go to any lengths to have a relationship with us. And then a king that turns it around and says, now I want you to go to have any, I want you to go to any length to have a relationship with a broken world. Lord, Heavenly Father, God, we come before you in humility that we often rebel against you as king. Lord, we don't like your methods. They're too soft. We don't like your choices. They're not selfish enough. We fall into the temptation of thinking that our best thinking is better than your best thinking. And then we rebel. We don't love. We forget you. We have a role to play in this story, but it's with the people, those who mocked you, those who forgot you. Lord, we come before you now in quiet, asking for forgiveness. Yet, Father, you are a king who forgives. Lord, you are a king who says, as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. And if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. Lord, you have given each and every one of us the power, the cornerstone of forgiveness. And so we are bold to ask and to know that we have received forgiveness from you because your words give us that authority, give us that power to bury our past and to go forward walking one step at a time with you. Lord, we pray for the courage to follow you as king. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.